Hi everyone, it's Joakim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast. A podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Teppo Soininen is the co-founder and CEO of Ministry of Games, a mobile gaming startup from Helsinki, Finland. I've known Teppo for a long time, and he has been building his games company for some time now. He has gone from longer development phases to rapid development recently, and has worked with publishers to launch his previous games. We'll now discuss the lessons that he's learned from working with publishers. This podcast is brought to you by Playtest Cloud, who make playtesting mobile games easy and convenient. Playtest Cloud allows game studios to record real gamers playing their mobile games. Just upload your build and Playtest Cloud will take care of the rest. Playtest Cloud offers many different ways to test your game. The cool thing is that you can even upload mockups of the game and get people to answer your questions regarding those mockups. When you have a build, you can just submit it for playtesting with real gamers. And either way, you'll get real and honest feedback from actual players. So Playtest Cloud has their own player pool of about 160,000 players. So you can choose the exact audience and mobile device you want to run your test on. Playtest Cloud allows a safe and secure test to run on people's device. So basically when the test is over, the game will automatically deactivate. Playtest Cloud will take care of everything and you don't need to worry about a thing. And listen to this, guys. For the listeners of the podcast, Playtest Cloud is offering a special promo just for new signups. When you go to playtestcloud.com and click on the sign up button, remember to mention Elite Game Developers in the How Did You Hear About Us menu and they'll upgrade your free trial to a premium free trial. Make playtesting mobile games easy and convenient with Playtest Cloud. Hi, Teppo. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Sure thing. Hey, let's kick it off with the regular question on how did you get into the game industry and to eventually found Ministry of Games? Well, that's obviously kind of a long story, but I'll try to keep it as short as possible. So I started gaming when I was a kid and got interested about games like at an early age and eventually decided to study computer science and programming at a university. I did some post-graduation research after university or in the university. But then this kind of like research wasn't really my thing. I wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed. So I decided to join a company called Hybrid Graphics that was doing computer graphics related things. So I was really into graphics programming at that point. And from Hypergraphics, a friend of mine, Otto Mackinen, founded a company called Umbra Software. And in a really early stage, he asked me to join him in that company. And Umbra Software was doing middleware for AAA games and MMO games back in the day. So that was where I kind of got my feet wet in the games industry. It was kind of a cool position to be at Umbra Software because we worked with a lot of game studios, like really small, like really different game studios back in the days we worked on, for example, on Bungie's Destiny, which is a massive project, took a lot of our resources. It was really interesting to see how that game developed, but then also worked with smaller developers all the way to kind of like these boxed arcade game machines back in the day. So that was like a super interesting kind of way to see how AAA and large games are being developed and also be a part of this, like technology development. During my time at Umbra Software, I drifted from programming to sales and uh, business development roles more. And after 
some seven, something like that years at Umbra Software, I decided to join Mountishi, this small indie mobile developer, premium mobile developer here in Helsinki. I invested in the company and I joined them. Worked there for a while and uh, at some point during that time, free-to-play games obviously became a massive thing and um, I decided that it would be a cool thing to kind of like try out like how could free-to-play mobile games be developed. It was a super interesting prospect and so me and a couple of friends of mine decided to found Ministry of Games. So we founded this, got some investment and got started over there. That's kind of like the short story. Let's go a bit back from there and your programming to BizDev jump. How did that happen? Like, What was the thought process there? Because I think that's definitely something that doesn't happen too often. What was the opportunity? Yeah, so I was working at Umbra Software back in the days and I was doing some programming stuff, but I realized that I was deep, or especially at Hyper Graphics, I guess it dates back to that. Like Hyper Graphics had a really, really talented group of programmers over there. I was really fortunate to be a part of that and learn as a part of the team and so forth. But during those days, I realized that I'm never going to be the best programmer in the world or anything like that. So, But I also realized at the same time that I have this kind of innate ability to obviously understand technology as being a programmer, but then also I'm interested in doing sales and talking to people and kind of like talking about technology and so forth. So during my time at Umbra Software, obviously we're selling technology to AAA game studios and MMO developers. It's like massive companies, but the sales process usually works in a way that it's a super technical product. So you had to sell it to the CTO or like a tech lead or something like that. So you couldn't have this like pure sales guy just talking to the CTO over there because they would be asking questions about like, how does it work? And like really detailed questions about the technology. So you always needed somebody technically adapt person to explain how things work and answer their questions, whatever they might be. So that was kind of like, I slowly started drifting towards this like technical salesperson. And uh, then as a result, because Umbra Software was, I think we were three people when I joined. We had like cardboard boxes for freaking chairs and that sort of stuff. So everybody had to do everything over there. So I was kind of like the guy to go for these like technical meetings and be the technical expert in a bunch of sales meetings and so forth. And I enjoyed it. So it was kind of a natural jump. So the rest of the guys were like focusing on programming and that sort of stuff. And I was helping the sales guys do their sales thing. And so forth. So that was kind of like a natural transition for me. And eventually, like after doing that for a while, I started growing into this. Like <laughs> we started building up sales networks around the world. We had sales representatives in Korea, Tokyo, Shanghai, Seattle, and so forth. And during my travels, like when I was like doing business trips, I was selling this software. We met a lot of other people who were selling other middleware and then formed these relationships with people. And eventually ended up like building these kind of sales representations or sales network around the world for Umbra software. So that was kind of like a supernatural process for me actually to get into, get from programming to through sales to business development. Right, right. Probably going from there, you saw the AAA market and then you went to mobile and then to free to play. Like, how has the industry changed since you found it? ministry and even from from earlier from that point when you were at umbra so yeah obviously like back at umbra when i was working at umbra all the triple a games development and mmos in the west were pretty much like premium you paid a bunch of money and you got the game but especially because we did a lot of business in asia especially in china back in the days 
China has never been like this premium gaming market. They everything was free to play over there already in like 2007, 2008 when we started doing business over there. So that was kind of like I started seeing that there's like a lot of companies in China. They have hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of employees. They have games that are played by millions, tens of millions of people. I never heard about them. They're clearly generating a bunch of money, and they don't like they have a totally different business model from what we've used to over here. So that really got me interested. And I got really into like, I started studying and started like kind of like looking at this business model in general over there. So that was one of the kind of like obvious changes since Umbra software that I kind of like observed on the sidelines. Right. But since like founding ministry, obviously the mobile games industry in particular has changed quite a bit since that. So I guess like one of the biggest changes that I've observed after ministry was founded or like during like since I joined Mountain Ship and so forth is pretty much like the maturing of the industry. So there's a lot of like common knowledge that is now shared amongst the industry that didn't used to be there. For example, like admonization is a big thing nowadays. Didn't used to be a big thing. And now there's a lot of knowledge on how ads can be used to monetize and so forth. Mm -hmm. Previously, it was just like, just put a banner over there and see if like you get, get a little bit of cash out of it and that sort of stuff. So now it's a kind of legit monetization model. And obviously, the role of app stores and traditional UA channels have changed quite a bit. A lot of studios are now going, getting really creative with their marketing side of things, using influencers and that sort of stuff. And influencers have also changed the way that discovery works. So Google Play and the App Store are not necessarily <laughs> the only channels anymore where people find games. My daughter watches a bunch of YouTube channels and picks up games from there. She never watches these app stores where I used to back in the days find all my games and so forth. So. That's actually a pretty profound change that has happened lately. Mm. And obviously, from a player's perspective, I think there's a lot more diversity in mobile games than there used to be when I started in the mobile games industry. Like idle games and hyper-casual games have made a breakthrough. So there's a lot more of these bite-sized gaming experiences available where you can just like play for 30 seconds or a minute and enjoy it. And on the other end of the spectrum, Gamers are also offered like these really, really immersive experiences nowadays that also wasn't a thing back in the days. Like social interactions are way more involving than just like gifting a package to somebody or something like that. Some of the games are almost social kind of platforms where you do gaming on the side, like you go and chat, meet people and whatever, interact with your clan or group or whatever, and then you play a little bit of whatever game you happen to be playing over there. But the social kind of experience seems to be more encompassed, more kind of complete and more, it's available in more games, so to speak. So it's not just like Clash of Clans only or whatever World of Warcraft or something like that. It's a lot of games offer this kind of social ecosystem. And then there's obviously like the real-time PvP. It wasn't a big thing five, six years ago. But nowadays, like even on, even on mobile, real-time PvP games are a big thing. And esports even seems to be kind of trying to break through on mobile. So. There's been a lot of change in the past five years. Mm. Yeah, you guys have been around for a few years. Yeah, we've been around since like 2014, end of 2014. That time you've been slowly cooking the company. And what is kind of like the constant improving and growing and developing that you've seen and able to achieve with the company? I think from my perspective, it's the kind of like our ability to work more effectively as a team without compromising quality. I think we're able to plan 
and estimate and execute way better than we were able to in the past. It's kind of like a thing that when we have a clear vision, we know what we're doing, we understand why we're doing it, and we can back it up with a solid execution plan. We just get more things done. We're spending way less time figuring out what to do next, why are we doing this, and where are we going with this product, and so forth. So I think we're way more effective. We've kind of like managed to scrape a lot of the fat out of our process, so to speak. Yeah. I know for a fact that you guys were building like game projects that it took longer to launch the game, but you now switch to these kind of shorter production times. Can you tell me a bit about like how you came up with this shift towards rapid development and what led you to like decide that this is the way to go? Yeah, definitely. So we have to jump a few years back. Our previous game, Trade Town, it was a big monolithic project that took us about two years to develop until soft launch. And then we soft launched it for about a year or so. And this was something that when we analyzed it, when we went back and looked at this project, it was just a really, really risky and large project for a company our size. Obviously, the development cost is pretty high for like kind of just paying for development for a couple of years, but there are also like soft factors in play over here. Like when you're working long development cycles, obviously everything's relative, but for us, like two years is a long development cycle. It's kind of easier to lose the sight of your initial vision. Feature creep starts to happen and your execution can get far from optimal. You easily end up spending more time on less important tasks. You might be able to justify like a week of additional work for less important feature just because like you're going to be spending 24 months on this game. So what's a week going to do over there? So you can like end up making suboptimal decisions just because you have a bunch of time. And if people come to work on Monday and they are thinking about like, they're not sure what they're going to do and they're asking themselves, why am I doing this and so forth? You're not working at like an optimal capacity. It's not ideal for the company or the employees. I found out that our guys seem to be more happy when they know exactly what they're doing, they know why they're doing that, and they can see that their work has a clear impact on the project and the company. This makes our employees happy, and employees are happy employees are effective employees. It's kind of a win-win thing. So these things made us rethink our approach to game development. So we started to think about how to how can we kind of like keep this laser-sharp focus, which we had during parts of like from time to time when developing trades and when we had clear goals, when we had a clear vision, we knew exactly where we were going. Things were moving super fast. But then sometimes we lost that vision. And I was thinking, of how could we actually just like keep that vision, keep this like laser sharp focus all the time? What should we like? How should we do things to keep up this like super sharp focus? And then we came to the conclusion that we just need to have this like smaller kind of increments. We just need to package, chop our projects into these smaller bits and pieces. And this doesn't necessarily mean that the overall scope of the project would be smaller or like less ambitious or something like that. It just means that we're going to have to think about them. Like we're going to have to just put these milestones closer to each other, like within smaller intervals and execute on them. And then it's kind of a focus thing and so forth. Obviously, it kind of limits ourselves to some extent to these kind of certain types of projects. For example, if we're developing with this type of model, we need to have some sort of a core tight core loop that we can develop rather fast and test rather fast. If we have this like kind of massive MMO style kind of World of Warcraft, probably wouldn't be able to develop it with this type of model. But I think for the time being, it seems to be working really well for us. Limits a little bit on like what kind of projects we can take on, 
with this type of planning, but this type of method, but it seems to be working really well for us at home. Have you actually now, do you know better when you kill a project now versus what you did four years ago? I think we do. I think we do. Obviously, killing a project is rather easy when you're seeing bad numbers. That is like a really easy decision to make that, okay, this just doesn't seem to be even close to the ballpark where we want it to be, or like making the decision to move forward with the project is easy when you're seeing numbers that are really promising. So that is kind of like the earlier you can get to that point, the easier for you it is to make a decision based on that. So that really helps my at least decision making on that front. Have you in the team developed like what you see in a prototype as something that you can make decisions based on like internal playtesting to kill something? We don't do, we haven't done internal playtesting. So what we do is pretty much like we do, how would you say, kind of like prototyping, like thought process. We have a bunch of like concepts and we kind of try to decide on them. And once we decide on a single concept, we tend to sacrifice the three to four months on developing that game into a testable prototype. And at that point, we should have such a clear vision of whatever the product is and whatever the game is going to be, that we're going to be driving it to the stage where we can test it with actual users and then make a decision whether they cancel or not. Right, right. I think it's going to be like everlasting like development process enhancement that a lot of companies that are trying this, like it's just in the recent years, it's come into the rotation of that you can't really spend a year on a project anymore. And it's also like the fact that it's almost given that your team will enjoy the product or the project, the game that they're working on. Because they, at least in our case, because the team decides what concept they will start working on. I feel that it's a really important thing for the team to be enthusiastic about the product, the building and so forth, so they can pretty much stand behind it and so forth. And it's always the thing that whatever they're building, they're probably going to love it or they should love the product. And at that point, it's kind of hard for the team to be super objective about it in the sense of like, yeah, it's not really forming out, let's cancel it and so forth. So the external input, the external data is a deciding factor for us. And getting that external data as early as possible is super crucial for kind of methodology to work. Yeah. Well, you guys have been around for a while trying to find the game and build a company. How have you created this kind of like environment where your investors are supportive over these years of finding your like secret success? Investors obviously like they usually tend to follow the money. So investors are happy if like money is flowing in and so forth. But obviously we haven't found the level of success that investors would be like kind of like jumping off their seats and that sort of stuff. But like beyond that, I think like how I keep investors Happy in the sense is pretty much like just keeping them informed about our status all the time. The goods and the bads, basically. We're doing this. This is, this is the reality of what's going on and so forth. They seem to be happy when they understand what we're doing and what's happening. I try to justify all our decisions to them in the sense of like we're doing this because of whatever. In the sense that they understand why we're doing things. And also, I listen to their feedback as much as possible. They are experts in areas where I'm not an expert. And also, like even though they wouldn't be experts, they still might have really, really valuable input for me. And that usually just keeps them happy. Right. 
is definitely worth the discussion. And if you have value add coming from your investors, definitely like keeping them up to date on like what's going on and how they can help. They quite often actually jump in at like discussions, even though I don't necessarily expect input from them. Sometimes I send them like a monthly newsletter in the sense of just outlining that what's been happening and what's going to happen next is kind of like a one page email that I send every month. And every now and then there's like somebody jumps in says like, I actually have this idea or like, I know these guys, they would be interested in this type of thing or whatever. Like they have this kind of like, sometimes kind of almost out of the blue, they come up with like input and sometimes it's insanely useful in the sense of like, I didn't even expect to get like help on this particular topic, but they just give it out. And that's usually a result of like just being active and like telling them, like keeping them informed and up to date on what we're doing. Yeah, it's sort of your newsletter pulls them in and then they get like activated. Exactly. Yeah, that is cool. Hey, let's go into discussing the publishing deals and the co-development deals. I know that you've been talking about this at conferences and it's Something that for me personally, I feel that a lot of young developers should utilize the partnerships that are available out there, where you get a lot of benefits from an established partner for launching your game. But I I wanted to ask, like, first, there's these two kind of deals that I hear talked about, which is the co-development deal and then the publishing deal. So how would you describe the difference between these two? So I don't have much experience with co-development deals beyond the fact that we've been offered a bunch of them, but I've never executed on any of them. So I'm pretty much talking from the experience of like, kind of like just talking about these co-development deals, publishing deals we've done so that I know something about. So I think the big difference obviously is that like publishing deals are typically offered for games that you have developed, you've created the vision and you've developed and so forth. And the publisher comes in and trying to, funds maybe some of your development and so forth but you're usually the vision holder you're the one who holds the reins and you you're the one who decides where the game should be going Mm. and so forth so that's my experience with publishing deals so you're kind of like in control of the game and the publisher comes in and does the marketing side that's the side of things that's the rough kind of division over here for my experience what i've like from the co-development deals that we've been offered they're usually somehow a little bit more constrained in the sense like the vision might be already pre-crafted for you or there might be some IP that somebody wants to develop a game around or something like that. And that creates a bunch more limitations for the developer or where the game can be taken and so forth. So for example, if you have an IP, the IP holder will probably have like some kind of thoughts and limitations on how the IP should be used or if there's some sort of a game concept out there that they want to develop and they're just looking for a developer that sets a way bigger set of limitations on how you can work and what your kind of creative freedom would be. I'm not saying that either one is like a good or a bad thing, but it's just, I guess, like the the division, who holds the vision and who controls the vision is probably the biggest kind of difference that I see in publishing deals and code development deals. Yeah. You have done self-publishing and you've gone with a publisher. What are the kind of like the clear pros and cons there? So I guess like the big pro in um, publishers is that you can utilize the resources of an organization that is typically larger and probably more effective in marketing, especially in marketing than your organization. Publishers bring in expertise you don't have. 
they typically expertise and resources that you don't have or resources or expertise that would be hard for you to acquire one way or the other. Typically, it is like marketing expertise and just cash, marketing cash. That's obviously a really, really big upside. You don't have to start recruiting this whole like marketing team for a game that you're not 100% sure whether how much it will scale and that sort of stuff. And you don't have to go through VCs to get a bunch of money to actually fund for that market. You don't lose equity with publishers. So it's kind of like this thing where you don't have to drag them along for a long time. The con, obviously, you need to do extra work to keep everyone on the same page. So you need to inform a publisher. A publisher might be in California or whatever, and you're working here in Helsinki. So there's a time difference and that sort of stuff. You have different organizations and Publishers are not necessarily 100% aligned with your company's interests all the time. So your publisher might have 10 games in the making and your game number four or something like that. So you're not necessarily always getting top priority or something like that. You're not necessarily top grossing game in the publisher's portfolio. So you're kind of like being treated like that. For, but for your, yourself, you have only one publisher and one game. It might be the kind of top priority for you. The game might be kind of like generating good revenue for a small company like ours. But for a billion-dollar company, like a large publisher, it could be just an insignificant blip on their radar, and it's not necessarily like super interesting for them. So there might be a little bit of misalignment over there. It really depends on the structure of the deal and uh, the publisher, how they work, and so forth. So even though you're not their top priority, some publishers are still like going to treat you like you were their top priority. It's just also like this gutsy feely thing. Yeah. Which kind of publishers can win the best deals in 2020? So I think like publishers who identify good targets early and move fast are the ones who are going to win the good deals. As a publisher, if you wait for a long time, if you wait the game to mature and you're expecting like, yeah, we're going to jump in once your numbers are stellar, you're going to hit a lot of competition. You're going to be competing against other publishers who want to get into that thing, which is going to probably up the price of your project. Or you're also going to be competing against the developers will to self-publish. So if your game is already monetizing really well, you're making a bunch of millions already from a game in revenue, actual revenue, it's really hard for a publisher to justify like, what is the additional value that I'm bringing now to the table? So Mm. that is pretty much the move fast and uh, identify targets early. I think that would be a good thing. Yeah. Thinking about the publishers, what are these kind of like qualities and key attributes that the developers should look for in a publisher? So I typically look at kind of five attributes in a publisher. First, I look at their track record, like what kind of past do they have? Have they had like successful games in the past? I find that usually like a hit game in the past is a really good testament for the publisher's ability to deliver on games. If they've had a hit game that they've been able to scale up, that really tells that they at least have the expertise the know-how and the resources to do that. That's usually a really, really good good sign. But it doesn't really mean like if the publisher doesn't have a track record, it doesn't mean that they they suck at it or anything like that, but it just like makes it harder to evaluate whether how good or bad they are in what they're doing, pretty much the marketing side of things. Then I look at the portfolio fit. That's another kind of a good indicator. So a publisher might have big hits in, for example, the hyper-casual space, but if you're doing a game that's like super core, like an MMO, like Empires and Puzzles or whatever, that sort of thing. It might be 
they know where the hyper casual users are, but they don't necessarily know where the core users are, and they're not necessarily adapt to working with the type of game that you're working. So I try to see whether like how good of a portfolio fit would the publisher be at the moment. There's obviously like some publishers are really really good at like doing all kinds of things. Like for example, Scopely seems to be doing all kinds of things really successfully. They have really core titles like Walking Dead and Star Trek title that have been successful. They have Yahtzee with Friends, which is seems like a way more casual title compared to this game. So some publishers seem to be crossing borders way better than others. So, so yeah. it's not necessarily like even if they don't have your type of a game in their portfolio, it doesn't mean that they can't do it. But it's also like a thing, that, thing to think about. Then I look at the resources. Do they have the human resources and the monetary resources to actually scale your game up? What if your game becomes a hit? Can the publisher actually spend like $100 million in marketing just right now and that sort of stuff? That's like an interesting kind of exercise to do. Like, would they be able to do it? And that is something that some publishers don't necessarily have the money and that sort of stuff. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's just something to think about. Like, if it's a massive hit, would the publisher be straight up able to be able to invest and put resources, like also human resources in the sense of like handle all the customer support and community management and whatever, these kinds of things. Then a fourth thing would be reputation. Like just ask around, have they done third-party deals previously? Have they worked with other developers previously? What are their experiences? Usually I find it kind of like interesting to talk to the developers, the publisher, if the publisher has a track record of working with developers previously, talk to the developers who did not succeed with this publisher. Then you can get some sort of an idea of how the publisher worked in a situation that's kind of like where things didn't go their way. And usually it's a good testament if a publisher has been like nice to the developer, even though things didn't always go exactly as planned, that's usually a good sign. And then last, I look at the cultural fit. So this is more of a gutsy feeling thing. Like, how would I feel working with them? How would the team feel working with them? Is it something that they're like, kind of like, yeah, I'm not sure. Like, these guys seem weird or like the other way, like these guys seem really nice and I would really love to work with them and so forth. So those are kind of like five things that are a little bit vague and none of them like are pretty much like deal breakers at any, any given point. But they're kind of a good idea of like maybe scoring them from one to three on each category and then seeing like, okay, these guys seem to score high. Why are they scoring high? Do I get like, it looks like a good, good option for us based on this kind of evaluation, so to speak. A lot of developers are focusing on this rapid development. Like you guys have mm -hmm. gone from longer productions to short ones. And then you can yourself run a UA test to get the numbers. And this development cycle is so rapid. So how do you see this kind of like the dynamic there changing in the cooperation of developers and publishers? Yeah, that's true that like you can do tests on your own. You can at least do these smaller scale tests by buying like a few thousand users into your game and getting an idea of what your benchmark, basic benchmarks are and that sort of stuff. That's definitely like a thing that all developers should do in general because by Doing that, you will get a really, really good idea of like how valuable your product is to the publisher and so forth. And once you know this, you would be, as a developer, you would be able to evaluate how valuable your product is and whether you should go through a publishing deal and whether a publisher will actually give you added value. Mm -hmm. It's rather kind of like when you're doing things quickly, obviously the publisher needs to react quickly. If they get into the game really, really late, you're going to have already like it, 
iterated the game quite far. Your numbers are probably looking pretty good because you've continued developing the game. And then you always have the option of self-publishing or you probably have a bunch of offers on the table already. So you're going to be facing competition. So the developers can use this to their advantage in the sense of just like if you're moving forward and your numbers are developing into a promising direction, then it gives you the opportunity to have options pretty much. And that's always a good dynamic from mm. a developer's perspective. Yeah. If you have the best numbers ever, you probably don't want to walk to the publisher first. But I guess it's like the question that I wanted to actually ask you is like comparing the publisher deal to an investor deal. What is the difference there when you have a hit game in your hand or maybe when you don't yet have a hit game? Yes, it really depends on like what you're getting and what you're giving. I think that's the big thing. So whatever position you are in, you should always look at the fact that what if I go this route? Am I making it's a rather simple at its core? It's a rather simple business decision to make in the sense of like kind of just like, am I going to make more money by going this route, self-publishing, for example? I'm going to make, I don't know, this and this much money if I go there. But what if I go with a publisher? I give, say, half of my revenue to one publisher. Do I expect them to double my revenue at least or like hopefully even like more than double my revenue? So am I generating more value by going with a publisher than going on my own? And that's kind of a simple decision, but it's not super easy to answer in the sense there's going to be strategic factors in play. Like, for example, like, are you going to be pursuing a long-term relationship with the publisher? They might be interested in acquiring your company or acquiring your game. That might be kind of strategically really good for you to just like go with a publisher in the hopes of generating some sort of an exit in the future, for example. Or other things might be in play that you just want to be associated with some sort of a big name publisher, for example, it kind of pushes your company value up by just being associated with some sort of a publisher. So these are kind of like things, but at its core, I'd say like it's a simple decision. Are you generating more revenue by going with a publisher than you would generate yourself? Are you getting more than you're giving away? Yeah, that makes total sense. So then like this is an interesting dynamic that I remember back in the days that when free-to-play started to boom, pitching to investors that like you're not going to be publisher, but you will seek publisher for your games. Like how did the investors, do you think, react to this earlier? And how has the sentiment changed over the years? I guess it really depends on the investor in the sense like wise investors will, will be able to kind of will understand that whatever, like if you justify your decisions by saying that this is the best thing for the company at the moment. And this is how I justify it. For example, like if we did this alone, we would make this and this much money. But if we went with the publisher, we're going to make three times as much money and that sort of stuff. And the future, whatever ramifications for the future are going to be minimal or three times, four times, whatever, like multiples of your money. If the kind of like publisher route is just a better option for the company, a sensible investor should kind of be okay with that. But obviously, if your investor thinks that going your own route, like even if you're generating less cash in the short term, in the long term, you'll have more doors open and it'll create you more opportunity, you probably should listen to them in that sense. But I think not publishing yourself is a viable option as long as you can justify it. Any investor, any sensible investor should be happy with that. And that's at least been my experience thus far that like, We've done a publishing deal. I've justified it to our investors and they were pretty much on board with it in the sense of saying that it does make sense in your situation at the moment. Yeah. 
That totally makes sense. Do you know of any kind of like definite red flags when you're discussing with publishers from the developer's angle, like that they would definitely say, no, this is not good. Obviously, like everything depends on the situation, but there are always like things that would kind of like be kind of things to avoid if possible, so to speak. So at least one-sided commitments are kind of like things that I typically want to avoid. So if there are like kind of commitments that you can't get out of, that's usually pretty bad. And especially if you can end up in a situation where you're contractually obliged to do a bunch of stuff, but your publisher is not really, they can just hang back and do nothing. That's usually like a bad situation that you're developing a massive amount of features and that sort of stuff. And your publisher is just sitting there and not paying you any kind of money or like they're just like waiting over there. Like if you end up in a situation like that, that's usually not ideal from a developer's perspective. So you want to always have some sort of a way out in the sense of if the publisher doesn't do anything, it's reasonable for you to not do anything about it. So it's usually kind of like a thing. And I would also try to avoid commitments that box you in in the future. So. If you agree to sell the company or the game with a preset price before you know what value it has, or you kind of like tie yourself to the publisher for the next game, whatever the next game might be, or you give them some sort of a kind of future option to seal your next publishing deal or something like that, that's something that I would probably try to avoid if possible. Mm. Yeah. If you would have to pick like one thing that, for instance, uh, a new free-to-play developer should look into when they're looking for a publisher? What is the, the one thing that you should make sure that they're going to be doing in world-class like perfection? I would say look for successful titles. That they previously would, published. Exactly. Yeah, that is a good point. Well, successful titles, especially with external developers. That would be a great thing. Yeah, because then you know that there's the relationship building works. And they have the infrastructure for like pretty much like working with people who are not a part of their kind of corporate culture and corporate infrastructure and that sort of stuff. Mm. Makes total sense. Let's go to some CEO hot seat questions. They're short and not too painful. Are you ready? Yeah. How can CEOs talk about their stress and burnout without scaring away customers and investors? So I think as a good leader, you should be able to delegate responsibility and kind of like build up the company so that you yourself are not irreplaceable. So if organization can cover you for you when you're not able to function with full capacity, you build a good organization and you're kind of in a good place at that point. And if you're able to kind of like just communicate this like organizational structure where the CEO is not the vital organ of the company or the centerpiece that is required for everything to work. And your customers and or investors understand this thing. They should be pretty okay with you just being straightforward to them, just saying that it's just too much for me at the moment. I need to take some time off. I need to cool down or whatever it be. And if the organization is well-built and people can cover for you, your investors and customers should have full trust that like, it's not just your show, it's the whole company and you're just a part of that company and people can cover for you for the time being. And it's not that you're not like, you're useless in the company. It doesn't mean necessarily that, but like it's, I even try to build this like whole company culture around here that like, 
no one, not a single person, including myself, should be replaceable in the sense. So if I'm away, obviously, I'm hopefully the best person to do my job at the moment, but it still doesn't mean that no one else can do it at all. So people cover for me, they can do it to some extent and so forth and move with that. So I think that would be like a good way of like, kind of like just preempting this thing by building a robust and flexible organization. How do you get off of your work mode when you're not supposed to be working like on a holiday? I do sports. I just like consume myself with exercise and different types of sports. Either it's like kind of like really demanding exercise in the sense of like lifting heavy weights or like running or something like that. Or it's some sports that require like my full concentration. Like if I'm hanging down upside down and freaking jumping from a cliff or whatever that sort of stuff you don't have time to think about like your work or anything you really need to focus on what you're doing that sort of stuff and i find that really really kind of like gets my mind off of work and gets me focused on what i'm doing and i'm enjoying doing like i don't know snowboarding and slopes and that sort of stuff in the game industry people hire people who are similar to them so diversity isn't too strong yet i would say in this situation, is there any kind of group think that can be happening that isn't really healthy for the success and future of the company? This is really a really hard thing to think about, especially like because I'm looking at things from within the industry and that sort of stuff. So it's hard to say whether something is a non-healthy group thing or whether it's like just industry know-how. It's really hard to tell the difference between these things. Sometimes things are just like common knowledge and you shouldn't be really discussed kind of further to just like make things move forward. But sometimes it's just skewed thinking. So I guess like one of the things that I notice is like, or I see quite often that game developers do is that they take the success or failure of individual games and make them as general trends. So for example, like, I guess like in the wake of Pokemon Go and Clash Royale, a lot of developers decided to kind of like go for location-based games or like real-time PvP mobile light type of games like Clash Royale and uh, it seems at this point that like these games are almost alone in their category in the sense of like they're way more successful than other games so they haven't really at least this far created this genre of games like for example puzzle games are like a genre in the sense of there's a lot of successful like super successful games out there just from my perspective so then on the other way around like especially when we started this company puzzle games were totally out of fashion at that point. And like everybody was considering puzzle games to be yesterday's news until the garden escapes happened and I'm and puzzles happened. So now it's kind of like a thing that everybody's like, yeah, puzzle games actually are again like kind of a hot topic. So there seems to be this kind of like overgeneralization of like individual failures and successes that are kind of is quite common for the industry at least at the moment. So mm. you are making games now in the rapid development mode of two to three months to a soft launch. Is there any circumstances that you'd have to go and want to go back to developing games for, for a year or more before you soft launch? Most definitely. If the rapid development model that we have put in place, if it doesn't work, if it doesn't produce results, the type of results that we want to, then we would definitely rethink and see, like, why didn't it work? And uh, what could we do to fix the issues that we encountered? while doing this thing. So if we just find out that it doesn't, like our assumptions were incorrect, we definitely rethink. And if we come to a conclusion that like, well, 
these longer development cycles seem to be like a thing, we definitely consider that as an option. And also the industry might change. Like it might be that this kind of rapid development model is just such an easy thing that the market gets super crowded with smaller games or like games done in a similar model and it gets so competitive that the kind of easiest competitive edge can be found by doing these longer development projects. That could be like a situation where we might change our way of working. Thanks. Let's go to the final questions. If you'd have to give advice on a book for an aspiring entrepreneur, what would that book be? I'm more of an audiobook guy, but I guess like it, their books all the same. But I remember like back in the days, I think it was 37 Signals, this web company released a book called Getting Real back in the days. And I remember reading that. That was like a kind of an essay, collection of short essays about like building web apps and that sort of stuff. Even though it's not really like applicable to game development or like all kinds of entrepreneurship, I found it like to be super interesting back in the day. It's like it's more than 10 years ago since I read it. It might be a little bit outdated and that sort of stuff, but I remember it being like super outdated. So I would go for 37 Signals Getting Real. Yeah, that's a good one. I like those guys. They renamed the company to Basecamp now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but they had the recent book was the doesn't need to be crazy at work. And that was a good one. Yeah. And also, I think they had the rework or something like that, like yes. after the getting real. I enjoyed all of them, but I think like getting real was one of these, like, there was just like two or three pages to prove a point. Like they had a point, then they kind of like prove a point, and then they moved to a completely different thing. And I find it like really interesting. These kind of like nuggets of information that you could possibly utilize in the future. In a way, it's cool because they shape their own company culture by talking about it in books that you can buy from the bookstore. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting for sure. Do you have three stories that have shaped you to who you are today? Let's start, like, I guess, like professionally in the sense, I think like one of the most important things was when my father bought me my first computer. So he bought me a Spectrum ZX or ZX Spectrum back in like some early mid 80s or something like that he brought it from one of his business trips and it really got me into gaming and obviously like computers were way more complex back in those or like complex in the sense of like user interfaces weren't so developed so i had to develop all the skills to kind of like figure out how to actually like use this computer and then there was a bunch of like manuals on like how to program stuff on this computer, just like pretty much like kind of just copy pasting like pages of text and seeing like a thing move on screen. So that really got me captivated with computers in the first place when I was a kid. Like that was probably one of the more pivotal moments in my career, like or like in my life of becoming like a gamer and a game developer. Another thing I think was like kind of a funny incident. The only time when I've applied for a job was pretty much like also pivotal for me i applied for a job at hybrid graphics and uh it was pretty interesting i went for a job interview over there and my good friend villa mietina was interviewing me and it was pretty much like talking through the whole freaking interview i did i tried showing him some code that i've written i was like yeah that's probably going to be crap so we'll teach you how to program and that sort of stuff and I left the interview thinking that I said like seven words maybe during the interview <laughs> that sort of stuff like that was <laughs> bad as fuck but then like after I get a call, like, yeah, we want to talk more to you and we want to talk more. And that's sort of stuff. Like, wow, that was pretty interesting and so forth. And eventually I got the job and so forth. So 
Thanks, Willy, for that. And it was pretty like interesting experience in the sense. And later on, Willy also like took me around in a bunch of business trips and like kind of showed me the ropes on like and like almost gave me like a one-on-one on business development and that sort of stuff. So that was really like a kind of like my first step from programming to kind of business development and sales and like just general kind of relationship building, which really is like super good at. So that was super pivotal for me. And then I think like third kind of pivotal moment was when Otso Mackin and uh, the founder and CEO of Umbra asked me to join the company. And um, that was something that I'm super grateful for. So he gave me a lot of freedom to work on like different things, like especially like moving from programming to sales, even though I had pretty much no experience on any business development or sales related things. He gave me a lot of free reign. He allowed me to develop these sales networks around the world and and like just gave me a lot of like freedom to do things how I wanted to do them. And uh, also was not kind of blaming me for failures and that sort of stuff. So I was able to learn and also learn from my mistakes. So I think that was a really, really good experience. So thanks also for letting me do that. Thanks, Steppo, for sharing those really good, good stories. Do you have any final advice for the aspiring games entrepreneurs? I guess just enjoy what you do. That's one of the things that eventually, like, wherever the endeavor takes you, wherever your company takes you, whether it's a failure or not, like, you should be able to look back and just say that I had a fun time doing it and I didn't waste like five or 10 or whatever, like three years doing that. So if you're enjoying that time, you can always look back and say that that was an awesome time. And at least this far, I've been able to have this like kind of like positive average of like good feeling during my time as an entrepreneur. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So educational as well to just, you know, have a company learn like crazy definitely like these are things that you just cannot learn in school or even if people tell you these things like experiencing them firsthand and like experiencing all the problems that you encounter and that sort of stuff it's so educational it's kind of funny that i even thought about it like when doing ministry i had like this list of things of like what i've learned in the past and i'm not going to repeat these mistakes and that sort of stuff and it's kind of funny that there are so many mistakes in the world that like, it doesn't really matter if you avoid these five mistakes, there'll be like 20 more that you can make. So you're always <laughs> learning. There's so many mistakes that you can make that you can't avoid them all, but just like try to avoid previous mistakes. Like that's kind of a good rule of thumb. It is. To wrap up, where can people find more about you and Ministry of Games? So we're not like a super media sexy or outward facing company. So if you want to know more, just feel free to email me or contact me through whatever means. So I'll definitely tell you more. Cool. Thanks a lot, Teppo, for your time. And it was really good. Thanks for having me on, man. Thanks again, Teppo, for coming on the show. If you have time, please visit EliteGameDevelopers.com and check out our courses on building a games company and the book that is just about to be launched. There's also a survey that we'd really love you to fill out so that we'll know more about what kind of content you're interested on game startups. So go to elitegamedevelopers.com slash survey for this survey. Thanks again, guys. See you next time. Bye-bye.